before we turn to the psalm, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus, cautioned us, saying, Consider carefully how you hear. With the measure we use, it will be measured to us. And Heavenly Father, we don't want to be those who are ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. So we pray, open our eyes, unstop our ears. And we pray that if we hear your voice today, we would not harden our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The psalm starts, we give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks. Now it's my birthday on Wednesday. I'm not massively excited about spending it at Contagious. As much as I love these kind of cherubs, I think I'd rather spend it elsewhere. My slight worry is that there may be some pranks from these lovely young people. But one of, what's, every silver lining has a cloud. And when you're growing up as a kid, what's the cloud to the silver lining of a birthday? Thank you cards, isn't it? It's kind of overshadowing you as soon as you unwrap that present. That a couple of days later, your mum's going to say, right, here's the list, and here's the cards. Now, as you grow up, you realize that actually that reveals a heart that's maybe not expressing a right attitude of gratitude, that it's on the take, and it's not really one that is truly thankful for what you have been given. Now, that is a concern that the Apostle Paul has for Christians in the New Testament. He is worried that actually they will lose sight of everything that they are, ought to be grateful for. So in a book, for example, like Colossians, in Colossians 2, Paul will write to that church and he will say, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continues to live in him, rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And then just a few breaths later, he will pause and just say one thing, and be thankful. Thankfulness is commanded, which actually infers that a lack of thankfulness is sinful. The Apostle Paul knows that actually a lack of thankfulness can be deadly. In Romans 1, Paul says again, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. And if you know the rest of Romans 1, that lack of thanksgiving leads them to idolatry. Paul's concern is that ingratitude will produce infidelity, that a lack of thanksgiving will lead to a lack of faithfulness. Now the psalmist knows this to be true. The psalmist knows, so he starts off with his psalm with a kind of double-handed thankfulness. We give thanks, we give thanks, O Lord. And so he starts to recount reasons. Now we've seen in Asaph's psalm so far, one of his flavors of choice is the nearness of God. Verse 1, We give thanks for your name is near. Now, God giving his people his name is part of his self-giving. It is a gift of relationship. It is the invitation to call upon him. 
And even today, when you meet a stranger, what's one of the first things you do? Hello, my name is. What's yours? I had an awkward moment this morning. I walked the dog pretty much the same place every day. And I met this lady I've met tons of times before. And both of us, I knew her dog's name. She knew my dog's name. We had no idea what each other's names were. (laughs) And so there was some kind of relationship, but it was weird. Hi, Ricky. Hi, Sanka. Who are you? There's a great film called Once. little independent kind of Tesco value film. But it's an amazing movie, really engaging. The main characters are stunningly portrayed. You're really drawn to them. At the end of the movie, do you know what you realize? You don't know what their names are. You go through the whole film ignorant of a critical part of their identity. And although you're drawn to them, at the end of the film, you feel somewhat distanced from who they are. The name is such a significant part of relationship. And so when the psalmist says, your name is near, here's one of the thrills of what it means to be in relationship with the God of eternity. He has given us his name. But again in verse 1, his nearness is particularly known when what? Men tell of your wonderful deeds. It's worth noting that the thanksgiving at the start of the psalm is community thanksgiving. And so alongside community thanksgiving, there is community telling. Men tell forth of your wonderful deeds. The Apostle Paul knows, as does the psalmist, that as well as ingratitude producing infidelity, amnesia produces apostasy. Actually, if we become forgetful, we quickly become unfaithful. And so as well as thanksgiving, preserving faithfulness, the community serves remembrance. Why do we gather every Sunday? Because we're forgetful, in part. Again, we need to be retold the truth of the gospel. Who is God? Who are we? What has he done? Why did the Lord Jesus give us the Lord's Supper? as a daily, weekly, whatever, constant reminder of his death and his resurrection. A community preserves remembrance. And the person next to you is probably more like a goldfish than an elephant. There probably is, I don't know if that's true, goldfish forget almost instantly. Elephants never forget. Actually, we're quite elephant-like, aren't we? No, quite goldfish-like. Our memories are pretty slow. Slow to remember, quick to forget. And actually, tonight, you can maybe serve the person next to you by recounting to them the wondrous deeds of God. Why? Because it will preserve them in faithfulness in this next week. I never got that idea of tying a knot in someone's hanky feel a bit weird, the kind of most snotty thing you have on you is the thing that's going to aid your remembrance. But actually, what do we do as Christians as we gather? I grab your hanky, I tie a knot, and say, remember the goodness of God. Remember his wonderful deeds. And so the psalmist continues in verse 2 and 3 to recount more reasons for thankfulness. More things to remember. And the two things he comes up with is that there is an appointed time 
and an upright judge. You see that in verse 2? You say, God speaks, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge uprightly. The reason for his thankfulness, an appointed time of judgment and an upright judge for that time. I don't know how quickly that would come to mind if you were told or asked, what are you thankful for? How far down the list would you have to get before it said, God is judge. There's a judgment coming. It's interesting that in the book of Revelation, that is the content of most of the songs of heaven. So if you read Revelation 15, just and true are your ways. Revelation 16, you are just in your judgment. Revelation 19, salvation, glory, power belong to you, for true and just are your judgments. I think that's partly because many of the saints who are singing in Revelation are those who have died in intense conflict. They have been part of the battle between Satan and the Lord Jesus. And when you've been amid that conflict, you rejoice that there is a just judge, that he is upright, and that he will do what is right. My guess is the reason why it's quite far down our list is because we live in relative peace. Actually, we're pretty comfortable. But hasn't your, your soul sung this psalm in the last couple of weeks? Rejoicing that there is an upright judge when we see the situation in Gaza and Israel. Rejoicing that there is an appointed time of judgment when we see the Christians driven out in Mosul or when we see the downing of the plane in the Ukraine. We know that judgment is not always meted out in this world. Some people get off. Some people seem to get off very lightly. It is a reason for thankfulness that there is an appointed judgment, and an upright judge. Verse 3 is interesting. When the earth and all its people quake, it is I who hold its pillars firm. That is to say, immorality sends shockwaves throughout the very fabric of creation. But God is a stabilizing force even behind an immoral society. When it feels like everything will give way, God, the judge of the appointed judgment, holds its pillars firm. Selah. Did you notice that in the psalm? It comes up time again in the psalms. I deliberately missed it out when I read earlier on to see if you'd noticed. It's part of the original. And yet we often scan over it without thought. Selah. Now we're not entirely sure what it means. It could mean an interlude. It may mean a change of musical accompaniment. It may mean that it was a command for the people who were worshipping to bow down. It could have indicated that it was time for a response by saying something like, forever. But most people agree it means something like, pause and reflect. Whenever you see that in the Psalms, the psalmist is telling you, hang on, slow down. Think about this. Pause and reflect. So we should probably do it. When was the last time you reflected on the appointed time and the upright judge? The Lord Jesus speaks to his disciples in 
Matthew 24. And he tells him a parable. He says this, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two will be taken in the field. Two will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two will be grinding at the handmill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, pause and reflect. Keep watch. Because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you almost also must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Reflect. Are you ready? Are you being the faithful and the wise servant? Given that the appointed time is coming, it is unknown, and the judge is upright and judge and just. Are you ready? Maybe for you the issue is not readiness. Maybe it's thoughts of revenge. Maybe in the injustices of this world, maybe it's something you've experienced personally. And actually your heart is full of bitterness and revenge. Well, the Apostle Paul would ask you to pause and reflect. He speaks to you as a friend and says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. But do not overcome evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Are you ready? Are you faithful? Are you wise? Are you leaving room for the judgment of God, overcoming evil with good? There's an awkwardness, isn't there, in meditating on the coming judgment, on thinking that there is an upright judge. Awkward because we know that in and of ourselves we are neither upright nor just. The psalm continues, and the judge speaks, verse 4, and he speaks to those who have big boasts, high horns, and outstretched necks. Great images. We read Psalm 75 back there again, verse 4, to the arrogant, the judge says, boast no more to the wicked, do not lift up your horns, don't lift up your horns against heaven, do not speak with outstretched neck. Now, those images are pretty foreign from us, but they mean that it's taken the images of a powerful animal, maybe of a bull or a ram. They came up in Hannah's song earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 3. They can be both good and bad in the Bible, a horn. It is a symbol of power. Similarly, the outstretched neck is again a willful animal that is refusing to be bridled or tamed. 
So here God speaks to the arrogant boast that is lifted up against heaven. God is on the throne. You are in the dock. And the evidence that he is looking at is not just your actions, but your attitudes. Not just your behavior, but your character. Not just your externals, but your heart. You're laid bare in his courtroom. The evidence that is on trial is your pride. C.G. Mahaney defines pride as this. Pride is when human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on him. I think we can summarize that as this. Pride is storming heaven for God's position and ignoring heaven for God's provision. That is to say, it's storming heaven for God's position, I want to be you. And ignoring heaven for God's provision, I don't need you. The Bible would say, therefore, that actually atheism is the clearest demonstration of pride. To say that God does not exist and I can take his place. And to say that I need him not. Pride is pretty prevalent in our culture. I don't know if you watched that Commonwealth Games opening ceremony. I wanted independence from my own nation in that moment. I was thoroughly embarrassed. I thought it was awful. But actually, there was a fair amount of babelness in that opening ceremony. There wasn't a lot of humility displayed by the Scottish nation. Here we are, our achievements, our commercialism, our contribution to the world, and no reference to the God that our nation has been defined by in the past. But actually, we do not only just see pride outside of the church in a godless nation, we see it within ourselves. Um, I was going to quote a length from a Puritan called Stephen Charnock. If you have time this week, you can search online Practical Atheism by Stephen Charnock. It's in a book called The Existence and Attributes of God. But what Charnock does is he takes a Christian and says, here are all the ways in which you are practically atheistic. And he lists so many ways that are just totally convicting of a way that I live my life, storming heaven trying to be God, and ignoring heaven as if I didn't need his provision. But I think we can boil it down to two questions. How do I know if I'm proud? Question number one, am I thankful? The proud person is very seldom thankful. Why? Because they think that thanks should come to them, not flow from them. You should be thankful towards me. I'm so clever. You should be thankful towards me. I'm so good looking. You should be thankful towards me for my contribution to society. And I should thank no one. Are you thankful? A lack of thankfulness reveals pride. The second question just flows from what this psalm is as a whole. Are you prayerful? A lack of prayerfulness means that we're ignoring heaven. We don't need God's provision. And we think that we can do things by our own industry, by our own efforts. Are you thankful? Are you prayerful? 
You know, thankfulness is in distinct contrast from boasting. Prayerfulness is in distinct contrast from boasting. And so here God, the upright judge, who has appointed the time of judgment, says to those with big boasts and high horns and extended necks, boast no more. Boasting is excluded. Now he goes on to explain that in the next couple of verses. In verses 6 and 7, why on earth is boasting excluded for those who have succeeded and have been raised to the highest levels of society. Verse 6 and 7. Let's read this together. At your... Oh, wrong Sam. Verse 6. No one from the east or west or from the desert can exalt a man, but it is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. Why is boasting exalted? Because of the invisible hand of the Lord. We, when we see someone rise to the high echelons of society, are very quick to attribute their success to their own hard graft. We see the human forces that have been working their rise to fame. Actually, not often do we look at you know, the certain privileges that they've had, the countless opportunistic coincidences, the place they happen to be born, the century they happen to be born in. But we might say it's due to the forces of their own hard graft and to the forces of chance. What does Psalm 75 say? It is not for man or woman to exalt anyone. God is the one who brings one down. He exalts another. The invisible hand of the universal judge is behind it all. Now, we studied Isaiah recently. Isaiah knew this. You can read Isaiah 10, and he looks at the king of Assyria. Why on earth did the Assyrian nation manage to sack the Israelites? Only because God raised up the king of Assyria to perform his bidding. And when the Assyrian king was tempted to pride, what did God say? Shall the axe boast over the one who yields it? No, of course not. It is God who exalts. It is God who brings another down. Hannah knew this when she sang her song in 1 Samuel. Mary knew this when she sung of the Lord Jesus. Solomon knew this when he wrote the Proverbs. Proverbs 21 verse 1. The heart of a king is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like the streams of a river. Didn't the Lord Jesus knew this? know this? What does he say when he's on trial? He's in the courtroom and he says, you would have no power unless this was given for, from you from on high. The Apostle Paul too knows this in Romans chapter 13. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. The Almighty Judge says to one and all, to all people in whatever position, what do you have that you have not received? When my first nephew was born, little Toby, one of the things I would do, take him by the hands, when he was really young, 
And you know how they kind of do that thing where they kind of reach out and try and hit your face and they kind of scratch you and poke you in the eye and do all that kind of spit on you a little bit. Now, Toby could do that only so long as I held him there. He had no ability to even sit upright, no ability to stand, hardly any ability to move his arms and legs. But as he kind of reached out for me, if I wanted, I could have dropped him. I could have let him go. He could only hit me so long as I suspended him in front of my face. And the image of the rulers and kings who lift their horns against the almighty judge and outstretch their necks against heaven is almost a similar picture. They can do so only as long as their uncle holds them there. It is God who exalts. It is God who brings them down. That is why boasting is excluded. Because it is the invisible hand of the sovereign God. And just a sideline application. We've got an important vote coming in September. I don't think the pulpit is a place for politics. But I do think whatever the outcome in September regarding the independence of our nation, it is in the hands of the sovereign God. It is a privilege that we have a democratic society where we can lobby and we can campaign and where we can vote. But at the end of the day, we can rest content, secure, that this does not fall out with the hands of the Lord, whether yes or no. It is in his hands. So the judge, having spoken and having said, don't boast and removing the grounds for judgment, he speaks finally of that appointed time of the just judgment. Verse 8, in the hand of the Lord is the cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to the very dregs. Despite all the assaults on heaven, his throne has not been toppled, his seat has not been stolen, his rule has not been revoked, his appointed time has not been adjourned. And he says that those who have lifted themselves up against him will drink this wrath, this cup, down to the very dregs. It is all of hell for all of the wicked. Now, maybe it's a strange image. Uh, A cup is not particularly threatening as we understand it. But in the rest of Scripture, this image of a cup full of the foaming mixed wine is a vivid image used by God to display his anger, his just wrath against wickedness and evil. And if you don't fear this cup of judgment, all you have to do is look at the impact that it had upon Jesus It amazes me when you read through the Gospels. We've been doing Matthew's Gospel in the morning. Jesus is the most composed man. He's a man of great emotion. But when his disciples have lost the plot in the storm, they're screaming for their lives. Where is he? Asleep. 
He is a picture of Cam. When he enters Jairus' house and he comes to the deathbed of Jairus' daughter and everything else is commotion and wailing, he is a picture of assured confidence. This morning, when he comes face to face with raging demoniacs who petrify his disciples and are petrified themselves, Jesus is, again, measured together. One word, go, he says. And yet when this cup comes into view, it tears him to pieces. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he moves towards the cross of Calvary, he sees this cup coming, and he is sorrowful even to death. It's killing me, he says. He says, remove this cup from me. I don't know. How did the disciples sleep in Gethsemane when the Lord Jesus is wailing and he's crying even to the point of death? It is a miracle that they could sleep. The noise that would have been coming from his anguish and his sorrow. And as he goes from the Garden of Gethsemane that evening to the hill of Golgotha the next day, God the Father hands this cup of foaming wrath to his Son. And on the cross, the picture is that he downs it to the very dregs. He's consumed by it. The language of Sam, it is poured over him till it is all gone. You you should fear this cup. If you really knew, if you really knew what you ought to face on the judgment day, you would will like Jesus in Gethsemane. If we really comprehended how much Jesus suffered in Gethsemane, how I would hate the pride that is in my heart. If we knew the horror of drinking this cup of God's judgment on the cross, how we would cry, we give thanks to you. We give thanks to you, O God. On the cross, Jesus is consumed by, destroyed by, this cup of judgment. And why does he do so? He does so so that he would hand you an an empty cup and say, it's all gone. There's not even dregs left here. All the wrath that your sin deserves, it's gone. And in fact, as well as handing you that empty cup, he hands you a cup full of wine. But not wine of wrath, but of remembrance. Not wine of fury, but of thanksgiving. He says, drink this in remembrance of me. This is my blood poured out for you. Why did Jesus accept the cup in Gethsemane and down it on Calvary? For you. The psalmist 
finishes in verse 9. As for me, I'll declare this forever. I'll sing praise to the God of Jacob. Who was Jacob? Jacob was a deceiver. Interesting that God would allow himself to be called the God of the deceiver. But actually, that is the joy of the good news of Christianity. That for those who deserve the judgment of God, like a deceiver like Jacob, can find forgiveness because of what Jesus did on the cross. God remains both just and the justifier. The payment paid by his son, willingly, that you might be justified, made righteous in his sight. Do you know when we sing this psalm, and we sing the God of Jacob, we could as well implant our names. He's the God of Andy, the proud, arrogant man who would love to be God and ignores God. And yet he has been made righteous through the death of Christ. Can you say that tonight? That he is a God of Barry. He's a God of Jimmy. He's a God of Val. Can you say that? That he has downed the cup for me. And you cannot help but say, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Men tell of your wonderful deeds. Let's pray.